My name is Eric McCoy. Welcome back to Recovering Through Highness. Hey, this podcast and my life in general has swirled within the world of substance abuse, as most people know. And before I introduce my guest today, whose passion is to educate and help end the stigma on mental illness, I want to explain real quick how our purposes are the same. Addiction to drugs and alcohol is mental illness, and it's better known as substance use disorder, defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or also known as the DSM-5. Whether people agree with this or not, alcoholism was first recognized as an illness in 1956 by the American Medical Association. The federal government eventually led towards that direction with alcoholism being a disease, but drug addiction seems to be a lot more complicated. As the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the 12-step program, and insurance defining treatment as a medical necessity, as the DSM-5 defines it as a mental disorder, to me, a sense of hypocrisy encompasses this dilemma. Drug addiction, if defined as a mental illness, and I see no difference with this and all addictions, such as alcohol or behavioral addictions, how can you arrest someone for their mental illness? My mental illness, according to the medical field, was amphetamine use disorder severe, requiring that I break the law to acquire that condition. So my guest today is Tiffany Warner, who is a licensed mental health counselor, author of a best-selling book titled, There's a Light Within You That Never Goes Out. And she is the host of radio, a radio show, Moments of Clarity with Tiffany. You can hear her on Tantalk Radio, 1340 AM, 106.1 FM, Tampa Bay, 140.3 FM, WDCF. AM 1350 Dade City and WZHR AM. Now, Tiffany, if you noticed, I actually didn't mention one of the cities. Because <laughs> I don't know if I'd even. Well, pretty much it, right? those, those radio stations um, cover most of Florida, right. but then it's syndicated in Texas as well. And then we do a lot of virtual, um, it's on almost every podcast possible Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes. Um, you could ask her, I'm pretty excited about this. You can ask Siri, Hey Siri, subscribe me to the moments of clarity podcast and Siri will say, yes, same with Alexa. Um, so it's on Amazon music and, um, all sorts of podcasts, but primarily we air live off of Facebook live, um, uh, for Tiffany Warner and YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, YouTube, um, dot com forward slash MOC with Tiffany. So it's a moments of clarity with Tiffany YouTube channel that airs all the all of them live as well as live radio that reaches about 12 million and then plus with all the podcasts. So I'm pretty excited about it yeah. with the mission to end the stigma on mental health. Absolutely. That's what is that? What's really that? City? What's that city? Zephyr Hills? Zephyr Hills. Yes. <laughs> That's the reason I actually didn't mention the city. <laughs> uh, it's like the water. Have you ever drank Zephyr, Zephyr Hills water bottles? Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I think that's uh, where it comes from. There's a spring there, I think. That's right. So Tiffany, um, I know that you are typically not the one that is interviewed. And so I know. this is actually kind of exciting. Yeah. 
Um, it's done it a couple know, times, but yeah, I'm usually the host. Yeah. And so I know um, one of the things that you always like to, to ask and, and to get into a little bit is for those of us that work in the mental health or behavioral health industry, there was a reason that we got into this industry. And I'm curious on understanding a little bit of what your reasoning for this. I think that most therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists are crazier than everybody else. <laughs> hey there now. <laughs> hey, I'm a counselor no. too. So I, I fall no. into that. <laughs> I think so that there, there was once a time where we thought we were about to be crazy, but with the proper help, I think every healthy adult and therapist should have a therapist. And I don't know what a definition of crazy means, but <laughs> maybe going through something and had it not been addressed before. Yeah. Like, so I don't know what normal is. So I don't know what crazy means either. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember, I remember studying, you know, abnormal psychology and, you know, of course, abnormal was defined as wherever you live, you know? So like whatever culture that you live in, if you live in a United States, you know, we have what's defined as abnormal. If you live in Africa, they'll have what's defined as abnormal. Or if you live in, you know, other different countries. So abnormal psychology can ultimately be where you live and what's defined as abnormal in that place, you know? So anyways, tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. So you're asking me what prompted me to want to get into mental health. Yes. Okay. I, I knew you were going to ask that question and I've been interviewed a few times and people tend to ask that question. And I usually start with the fact that I lost my parents at a young age, but lately there's been some, some people coming around and guests I've had on my show, which made me do some thinking. And I think it started earlier than that around high school. Um, I was getting bullied, but not bullied in the sense of uh, mean kids at school, but it was my first love, like a boyfriend that was just, I had turned kind of psychotic. Um, and in retrospect, some of the stuff that he put me through, we would have called the police by today. But back then there was no mental health. There was like whatever. I mean, to the point where um, every time I tried to leave him, he would do something. And my parents were just upset about it at the time. Why do they keep, why, why does he keep taking it out of the car? Like he was slashing my tires, um, chased me with a baseball bat, put death threats and tell anyone if they ask me out, um, they would, he would fight them. Um, Big my car, threw me in a pool at a party once, um, just like, just mean, let the air out of my tires at a party so I couldn't get home. Um, just, um, to get me back together with him when he was abusive and and unfaithful, right? Those were, those were his tactics to get you back together? Yeah, like threatening. So, um, I know, right? <laughs> so, at the same time, instead of calling the police, I ended up with a pair of steel toe Doc Martens and, uh, and uh, um, eight years of kickboxing. It's Throwing, I started hanging around on my own, um, which I, back in the day, like I think in retrospect, it's made me a stronger person too. But I was going through that um, at the same time as um, all of that. Um, but I was still, you know, popular. I was on cheerleading. I was in sports on track team. I had a lot of friends. So it wasn't like his bullying and his threatening was, you know, fearful to me, I guess. But 
at the same time, it did impact my self-esteem. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, you know, I have bat in the back of my trunk of the car. (laughs) Like, I'm like, that's me. I'm just going to fight back. I'm not going to tell anyone or whatever. I didn't want to snitch at the time. I guess that's what, that's just how it was. But so going through that, right as I was going through that, um, I had just graduated high school and then uh, getting ready for first semester of college where I decided to take at a local uh, community college and then transfer into University of Florida fall. Um, and I was getting ready for school and um, woke up early and went to the bathroom to get ready and found my mother unconscious on the floor. And um, she had had a brain aneurysm and never woke up, was on life support for about seven days. And we had to watch as they pulled the plug. There was, there was no waking up from that, um, but it had um, made her brain dead, basically. And so going through the bullying, plus that, I started hanging around with the wrong friends. But also, and so drinking a lot and things, um, kind of, I was already getting traumatized, but that was just, you know, from over the top. Um, anyway, so during college, I lost both grandparents, my grandma, and my mother's mom died from depression, I think from losing her daughter. She just went downhill, died the next year. Um, grief and loss a lot. And I was grieving as well. And my grandmother that lived with us my whole life passed away the next year. And then two years after that, my father passed away from Agent Orange um, after serving as a war hero, as a captain, first lieutenant, and as a Marine in the Vietnam War. And so he died in 2001, um, right after 9-11 too. But during that time, um, I think I was feeling like I lost everyone at once. You know, not only that, but didn't know who to trust, hanging around the wrong friends, kind of probably for protection from what I was going through at school and um, drinking a lot and kind of lost my path. And when I wasn't raised like that. So, so as I was in school, I was an undecided major for the first two years. And, um, and they said, um, well, you need to decide by junior year what your major is. Honestly, Eric, I was thinking marine biology here. I don't know. I didn't know. But they said, do you have enough credits to get a minor in psychology or sociology? So obviously I was taking these classes probably to not only because uh, I found them interesting, but some of them, you know, at the time applied to somebody fixing themselves, which was me. Right. And so, and so, man, I chose sociology, but then, and I was a straight A student through all this too, honor society. And so to join the National Honor Society, National Sociology Honor Society, I attended one meeting and said, uh, so I changed it back to psychology as I think social work was for me. And um, so started on with psychology because I saw not only that, but I wanted to work with at-risk youth because not only being bullied, but being witness to bully, bystander to bully, um, having to succumb that 
And um, along with grief and loss and and sudden loss, so like with my mom, with my mother, it was instant, no, no warning. And then with my father, I saw him suffer and you know pass away with cancer um, from the Agent Orange. Um, that was just getting through his, it was like a helmet, like through his brain and his lymph nodes and everything. Um, it was pretty evident through the VA. He's one of the first people that actually was like bringing on that this was, this is the Agent Orange did cause this cancer for a lot of veterans because it's pretty common now. But when I was, this is the clincher. When I was, before my father passed away and I was going through this hard time and everything, I had told my father that I, I need to talk to someone. I'm losing my mind and I don't know who to trust. And he said, you're not crazy. You can get through this and um, you don't need a psychiatrist or counselor. And, and that's not what our family does. And that's when I was introduced to the stigma of mental health right there, first time, where not only that, but everything I was going through, instead of my parents sticking up for me and replacing, like calling the cops, they would just replace the tire with slashed or, you know what I mean? Fix the car or whatever, everything that I was getting bullied with. Like, everyone thought, I was like, I got this. And I was like, I'm going to kick butt back. <laughs> like, that's the mentality. I guess that's my mentality anyway, still. <laughs> it's just like, I'll handle it on my own. And I don't know if, and I want to thank him for doing that because if I didn't go through all of this, I, you know, I, I do miss my parents, but if I didn't go through all of that, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be as strong and as confident and willing to take on new things without fear if I hadn't been faced with all that, you know, um, it made me stronger and, and more self-confident by accident so it's it's almost like i'm grateful for what i've gone through um and losing my parents i think took a long time i found the right therapy and therapists and um and got through you know school and during that time i was in school to be a counselor with counseling psychology so i was surrounded by therapists professionals and uh, soon-to-be therapists uh, my classmates and everything so i had a lot of support which I'm grateful for too, but everything that I think that happens to us bad turns us into who we are today. Mm -hmm. I've got a strong spiritual faith that I'll see them again one day, but that everything happens for a reason. And I'm supposed to do something positive with it. According to the national Alliance on mental illness, they say Mm -hmm. that, you know, one in six United States youth that are age six to 17 experience a mental health disorder every year. Now I know with you and you had kind of mentioned the youth and a lot of the stuff with you happened when you were much younger, how much, and, and grief and loss. I know that was, you know, something that we had, we had discussed on the phone a little bit. And then you one in six, one in six uh, youth in the ages of six to 17 experience a mental health disorder. Okay. And diagnosis or disorder, a disorder. And, and so my question, I guess, is how much do you think grief and loss plays into that stuff? I mean, we talk about obviously clinical disorders, uh, chemical imbalances, but 
then we also look at life things that happen. Mm. And how much, how much stuff do you think that that relates to like that idea of grief and loss? How many kids do you not know that are, are not going through uh, adjustment disorder of some sort? I mean, divorce is more common than people, people are surprised when you're like, your parents are still married nowadays, you know? Um, and so, you know, kids going through that or change of schools or losing friends, or there could be some PTSD there that, you know, anything that they find traumatic as well, or losing a loved one or any of that. Yeah. Cause well, suicide, you know, is the second leading cause of death for, people ages between 10 to 34 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's something I think that we're really seeing a lot of, I noticed on your show too, you had that suicide, you know, awareness prevention. Yeah. Prevention. And, um, there's a lot of stuff on the, on the internet, like 13 reasons why and stuff like that, that kind of give kids an idea of that. Cause back when I was young, we didn't think about that stuff. I mean, it wasn't as common but the world's changing and that's why mental health is like taking a step forward. I think that it's made a, a large movement forward, but not, not far enough. We have quite a ways to go on ending the stigma on mental health. And yeah, cause we have, I mean, you have kids that are growing up, you know, with substance abusing parents, you have kids grow up that, you know, with me, with parents that have mental illness where they ultimately uh -huh. become the adult taking care of the parent. You know, we got kids growing up in sexually or physically abusing family systems where they ultimately lose their innocence, I guess you could say, you know, with that grief and loss. Sexual abuse is more common, uh, mm -hmm. child abuse, and there's a lot of things that we're finding are more common than we knew about before. Yeah. And it's a shame to know how common adult survivors of sexual abuse is. Like, there's more than you think rape and uh, molestation, anything. Yeah, I did a I did a podcast with my wife who um, grew up with a grandfather who sexually abused her and um, possibly her siblings or some of her siblings. And I asked her this question and I was, I was really thinking about it when I was doing the podcast is that, you know, we live in a society where, you know, there's so much about what do we, what we do for the victims that it has already happened to how much are we doing as a culture to help prevent these things from happening? Because, you know, I, like I always hear all the time, you know, the, the people that are like, well, it's up to the families to educate or it's up to the families to, you know, take care of this issue. A lot of parents don't want, you know, this stuff brought to schools. They don't want this introduced to their children, you know, of, of sexual or drug, you know, abuse because their ideas is it promotes sex, right? But what if it's the family that's doing this? And that's what I always... That's why... Well, usually it's the family that's doing it, don't want to address it or take them to counseling because they don't want their family exposed, right. which... Later on in life, when the adults come into my office as survivors, I, by the way, I, I don't use the word victim. I think mm -hmm. um, someone that says that they're a victim is living in fear and shame and guilt. Sure. Sure. When they come to, and the only thing that's overpowering fear is hope, identifying themselves as a survivor of something so tragic. Yeah, but sadly, our culture defines them as victims. 
I mean, the courts. I understand the culture, but the individual themselves can re-identify and reprogram their mind to not be a victim. Yes, absolutely. And they can be a survivor, not a victim, where where something bad happened to us. We've survived the worst days of our lives up to this point, 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. We I need agree. a pat to ourselves on the back. And the same day, the worst days of our lives will never be re- repeated exactly the same. We could go through more bad stuff, of course. You know, life is life. Mm-hmm. But the worst day of our lives will never be the same twice. Yeah, I agree with that 100%, you know, that, that these are survivors. You know, I, I, I even promote that idea with substance abuse. You know, the people that are mm-hmm. able to go through that stuff and walk out of it and be able to stand tall, you know, after experiencing the the hell that they put themselves through and then experienced, you know, I mean, we talk about putting himself that at least it started with choices. Um, it becomes something much different than that. And I can attest to that firsthand, but, um, but these people are definitely survivors and, mm-hmm. and I like that. Term. I think everyone should be identifying as a survivor. I think the victim role gets used too easily. Mental health gets used as a crutch a lot. I'm doing this because I have anxiety or I can't do this because or whatever. And I think people are stronger than they give themselves credit for a lot. And that when we, when we have that, that idea, that, that belief within ourselves, that self-confidence that we can, we have, we are strong to persevere through something else. We've been through worse and believe in ourselves more then I think people will reach their full potential in life and not be held back by labels or, or things of the past that can be repaired or healed from maybe not forgotten, but healed and seen in a different perspective. Yeah. That's what I was actually going to ask you. I I like the fact you used a label because I was going to ask you what you actually thought of labels. You know, we label ourselves, we limit ourselves. And, Mm -hmm. Labels are for food, not people. Right. <laughs> I like to, I mean, we have to get the right diagnosis so we can treat the symptoms with the right kind of therapy. Don't get me wrong. Yes. But it doesn't mean that we have to walk around labeling ourselves. We should know the symptoms of what, whatever we're going through so that we can target the symptoms, you know, face triggers, understand symptoms of depression, anxiety, traumatic stress, um, everything, and know like when to actually seek help for it and what to do and how to reframe our thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the brain, the DNA, it's crazy. And Dr. Jennifer Frazier on my show, not that long ago, we're talking about DNA in the brain and how trauma can affect the brain. And I mean, she can put it in such a great way, but that trauma and, and things affect the, our brain and the way we think and react to situations but we can reprogram that when we heal from it and we can react differently and without healing, like the, heal- the brain is an organ and it's the best part of like everything. And if it, it's kind of like if we broke our arm and didn't get a cast on it, it might work, but it will never work the same. You know, we have to heal it the right way with help. And a lot of people are afraid to heal their brain and not so embarrassed of having a cast on their arm. Mm-hmm. it's just you know beside me sometimes because there's so many I mean there's so many more things we can do in life when we don't live with fear or obsessions or compulsions or depression or self-medicating or anything um, 
when we actually find the right way that we can actually live happier, healthier lives by healing our brain. It's just, it's. You grow up in a family and you experience these horrible things. And then you've got also people that, that can grow up in the same family, but obviously behave and deal with, deal with things differently. Um, you know, how much do you think nature has to do with, mental illness or how much do you think it's the nurturing of how you grew up and the experiences that you had that had to do with mental illness? It depends on each individual. I think Um, everything's individualized. We can't just generalize everything, but I mean, there was, there was definitely some people that would be different if they had grown up differently in a healthier family or something like that and not turn to substances or drug addiction or things like that or vice versa but as you know mental health is genetic as well so as a predisposition that if there's mental disorder in the family history that it's likely to be passed down as well so um not every time not every generation but if there's bipolar in the family for instance um there's a significant amount of generations passed down that that are diagnosed with that disorder later on in life or early in early 20s early onset but okay. you know um a susceptibility to it mm-hmm. yes there's a-, a predisposition that it's genetic but it not every not every person so if my mother had three children not every child would have it but likely if they do it came from the mom's side of the family mm-hmm. yeah you, you know when i wrote my book i actually thought really heavily on that i do a chapter called think 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 right where you know it's really about helping people learn how to think for themselves not thinking through the minds of other people which we have a society that seems to just want everybody to think through their mind because they're right you know and, uh, and not teaching people the ability to think for themselves. And I start the chapter with the story of Ed Gein. You know, you know Ed Gein was the, yeah. the, Ed Gein was the um, basis for Leatherface of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, the basis of, um, uh, of uh, Norman Bates with... Um, what do you mean the basis of he came up with it? So, no, so he was... So the writers and authors of these stories based these characters off of this real guy whose who was name was Ed Gein. And so back in the 50s, he grew up in a he grew up with a fanatically religious mother, right? A mother that, you know, repeatedly told him all women are going to take you to hell, they're all evil, they're all whores. And he was the only time that he was ever allowed to leave the house was to go to school. He wasn't allowed to associate with anybody outside of school, so he wasn't allowed to have friends. Um, and he was, they believe also that there was an ancestral relationship between his mother. Um, and so he grew up in this just insane type family of, uh, again, not allowing him to think for themselves. And so again, he wasn't really allowed to get any influences from anybody outside of his household. And so mm-hmm. what ultimately happened was that after his mother passed away, there was a belief that maybe he kept her body for a period of time. Um, That's the movie Psycho, Norman Bates or whatever. Yes. Right. There was a lady who owned a, um, a hardware store in this town. It was some Midwestern town that owned a hardware store. 
and she went missing. And so the police got involved. They went down to the store and the last receipt that was written was to Ed Gein and the la- and, there, and his vehicle was seen to be in the parking lot, was the last vehicle in the parking lot. So they ended up getting a search warrant, went to his house. And when they went into his house, they found in the back shed the decapitated body of this lady. They found um, um, lampshades that was made of human skin. They found a, a jar of vulvas. They found another lady's head in the refrigerator in a jar. Um, so this kind of starts going into, you know, Texas chainsaw. Sadistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, that's sociopathic stuff. Yes. Antisocial and. Yeah. But the question really comes up is that if he, now his mother was also believed to be schizophrenic. And mm-hmm. so the question then comes up is how much of, uh, how different would he have been if he grew up in a different household? Um, who knows like what if he had the same diagnosis and then of course severe child abuse severe repetitive child abuse and sexual abuse like cultural um sexual abuse um you know satanic rituals all this stuff a lot of people the brain is so powerful that a lot of people develop disassociative identity disorder and it blocks it out which was formerly known as multi-personality disorder um so um, a lot of times, I mean, it's case by case here, you know, um, you don't know what he was putting through, but his brain could have disassociated and he could have developed psychotic symptoms because of the abuse and the repetitive abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been shown in um, sexual abuse, um, human sex trafficking, all these things, most of the people that end up with disassociative identity disorder, multi-personality, formerly known, um, were repetitively abused as children. And the, bl- the brain's so powerful, it protects us. And it splinters and builds different personalities that can handle things, that can erase things, that can protect us, um, repress memories to... It's it's a phenomenon of that how powerful the brain is and the mind is. But I mean, who's to say that they weren't, you know, both psychotic and sexual relationships between parent and child, especially when it's um, consensual. I don't know, um, not all the time. And I know some people, like in the book that I I've interviewed, that were tortured and horrified. I mean. Some horrible things. One one of the character, uh, not characters, one of the survivors in my book is I wrote the light. There's a light within you that never goes out. And it's adult survivors of sexual abuse and incest. And one of the characters, her story is horrifying. Um, she, she last night, last time I know, she had fifty something reconstructive surgeries just in her general area from rape from her father and brothers, and gang raped and tied in woods, tied in the woods, naked, left for critters and stuff like that from age one to 14. And her mother knew. However, this woman led to substance abuse, was in recovery for alcoholism and stuff, was the nicest person I've ever met, but just kind, would never hurt anything, and just doesn't, the main thing was, is, um, didn't know what, what, that she was still being abused by her husband, 
didn't know what normal, like how people are supposed to treat you. She was afraid to make eye contact with other people, fearful of people. We worked together and she would have emotional breakthroughs in counseling. And then, and then I would have sniffles or something just from allergies. And she'd be the one reaching out to me the next day, asking how I'm feeling first before. Yeah. And so it doesn't always turn out like that. Uh, not every person that's abused turns into a predator. It's it, there's no proof in any of that. But it's and I even asked her, "How do you even know how to celebrate holidays and stuff?" And she's, "I saw it in the movies." So you're the first you're the first person that's actually a licensed clinician that I've actually had on my show. I've had I've had great guests on my show, but you're the first uh, licensed clinician. And yay, I'm a first. Yeah, and so. Breaking the seal. Here we go. <laughs> and, um, you know, working in the substance abuse industry, as long as I've had, I've been in, working in it since 2003, um, a lot of years. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that I've always felt been really frustrated with. And I want to ask, ask the licensed clinician on what you think about the duty to report. You know, we talk about Tarasov, right? The Tarasov, you know, duty to warn, duty to report. And everybody knows this. And people that come in and meet with clinicians all have this understanding that I know that I can say anything I want except certain things. So as long as I don't say that I'm going to hurt myself or I'm going to hurt somebody else, um, then my confidentiality is good. So I'm not going to say those things. And do you ever get that feeling from clients that – um, they withhold information that could be detrimental. Um, you know, we talk about, again, this, the second leading cause of youth death is suicide. And how many people withhold information that we, that we would really be able to utilize to help them if they were able or if they were willing to disclose this, because obviously they don't want to get stuck in a mental hospital or if they say, mm-hmm. I'm going to hurt somebody else, end up in jail because of terrorist threat charges. The suicidal ideations and stuff like that. And you're, you're saying there's a big difference between suicidal fleeting thoughts, ideations. So like, it's a level of lethality um, that where they're like, they have an intent or plan or, I'm going to go home and, and find a gun or whatever. That's definite. But there's sometimes it's okay to say, you know, life has been hard and I just wish I'd, that I, I'd, be, I'd be better off dead. Sure. It's not big or actable. That's, you know, I think everyone gets those thoughts every now and then or, or life gets hard and the fleeting thoughts are not Baker actable. I make it clear to my clients that we will talk through it. And just because they're having those thoughts, I want to know why and what's going on in their life. And let's talk through it and make their situation better and problem solve. And I can get a sense usually when someone is trying to tell me something without telling me something. And I reassure them that, that that's not, you know, I'm not going to just jump the gun and call and put them in the hospital that will work through it. And then if they need, hospitalization then we go that route but i i don't have that feeling that um that people have withheld anything not in my practice so far because i have seen it um i have seen the uh individuals that were we found out later 
that were purposely withholding information because they did not want to get locked in a hospital that did end up committing suicide. And well, the thing is, is with me right now, I'm a private practice outpatient counselor. So people come to me because they want help, not because they're forced to. So it's kind of like, what's the point of paying me to lie? It doesn't make sense. You know, um, and so I haven't, I, I don't experience that now. When I worked in residential and correctional facilities back in the day, yeah, they, they didn't want to tell the truth because they didn't want to get in trouble for stuff, you know, that kind of stuff. But that's different than how I've been practicing for the past 10 years with. Yeah, complete voluntary is different. Right. Um, and, but yes, when there is a push from somebody, whether it be when, family members or the legal system. Yeah, like the ones that are court ordered or sent to me because their job says that there's probably something wrong and they're showing anger at work or whatever. I sense that they're holding back a little bit, but I don't really take those clients on very much anymore because it's like pulling teeth. Like, you know, just talk to me. <laughs> they feel forced to come to therapy only because someone told them to. Um, I don't really do that anymore, but the controlled forced therapy that's either court ordered or mandated or whatever you know even implies from that they're just trying to get themselves out of trouble mm-hmm. but the ones that hire me because they're like what i do now they come to me because they want help with what they're going through and they're willing to work on their problems because they searched me out not the other way around you know that has really been a frustrating thing because I, you know, I, I really think it's like, we want honesty, but we don't want real honesty, you know, because if you tell us real honesty, then we're going <laughs> to, we're going to lock you up, you know? Um, and even the fact of, of, I want to hurt somebody else, you know, I want to fucking kill that person. Right. And, you know, to me, it's like, you know, what we think and what we do are two different things. And part of that law to me says that, you know, um, I can get arrested for for not even doing anything, you know, if I'm ultimately thinking in a certain way. Does that make sense to you? Not from outpatient counseling, no. Right. But I don't think that, well, I mean, that's a higher level, but that doesn't really happen in the practice that I'm now, but it's happened in the past where, People want to say the right thing just to get themselves out of whatever their trouble they're in. If you say the things that are really the most important for you to say to us, those are the things that are going to get you in trouble. The people that scare me the most are the people that think that they don't need counseling or are afraid to go. So those are the personality disorders or the people that are actually thinking those things. They don't want to come to a counselor and get help for the fact that they want to go commit homicide or put someone's head in a fridge, they don't seek help. <laughs> That's the whole point. They are doing what they do and they know that they're going to get in trouble for it. They don't want to tell anyone. It's They're not the ones that seek help. The, the narcissists, the, the sociopaths, the antisocial personalities, or the, the, you know, the severe disorders are the ones that don't seek <laughs> voluntary help. <laughs> they're just doing something and they know they can't talk about it. They, they, that's the difference. Or they don't under, they don't identify themselves as having a problem because they lack empathy, remorse. They don't have those qualities, so they don't see that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. They see it completely different through different eyes. 
because you know that they don't have remorse they don't they think that what they're doing serves their own purpose or you know what I mean so it's it, they think completely different yeah. and those are the more severe um people that do horrific terrible things like that yeah. that they don't understand it nobody with remorse or empathy are they going to go slice someone's head off and put it in a fridge sure yeah absolutely so so going back to like unless they were like they did it and they're like sorry about this right, right. <laughs> like, I, I don't think it doesn't so. happen <laughs> So going back to, um, you know, you, uh, you know, dealing with all the grief and loss and you ended up seeking therapy and doing those things aside from the therapy itself, what were the things that you did that really helped you? Well, the kickboxing was a very good therapeutic outlet. Um, things I did, this is a long time ago, you know, um, that helped me, the therapy, it, it just started to let me see things differently. Um, I realized that, you know, instead of, because I was in, it was five stages of grief and think of uh, bargaining, denial, bargaining, anger, depression, acceptance. I was stuck in the anger phase forever Mm -hmm. and that wasn't helping anyone. You know, my blood pressure was up, started blood pressure medication, pushed a lot of people away. Um, But then by Ashley, I mean, Therapy was wonderful, but I mean, I did do a lot of uh, outdoors things, you know, trying to be in nature, coping skills. I had journals on my own for a little while. There was not a lot of positive coping skills for a second, but then when I started to do positive things and finding positive friends, like going canoeing in springs, like or um, camping out and you know having healthier people around me and building a support network that was healthy rather than feeding off of my anger really changed things for the better as well. Because, you know, you kind of, you know, when you, the way we feel inside is who we attract. So if we feel like wounded birds, we attract other wounded birds. When we feel angry, we have other angry people, you know, people tend to relate. And the more healthy I felt, the more confident I felt, the more I attracted healthy, confident people as well around me. And, um, and it just was just a positive thing. I had to go through therapy to handle the grief in the right way to get to the level of acceptance. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes it goes back to depression or, you know, every now and then just because, you know, it's a photo album or whatever, just a second, but I love it. I've been in acceptance for that grief, but there's other things you grieve along the way in life, other situations, more situations arise. And you could recognize those symptoms and, and do something about it quicker rather than than just live in pain and self-medicate because through therapy and finding mindfulness. I use a lot of that, um, trying to stay in the present and not worry about the past or the future and focus on what's happening today, here and now, not the what if world or the should have world. Dr. Amber Baker, you, she on the show is great. She's go friend yourself, she said, and mm-hmm. and and stop shooting yourself. And it's so funny because it's so true. Like we just need to stop saying I should have, I should have, or I wish I did, whatever I could, shouldn't have, or uh, what if this happens? And it's a waste of time. We Could've just woulda. Yeah, stop shooting yourself. Um, but at the same time, it's 
it's trying to stay mindful, um, focus on the things we do have rather than things we don't. Learn to be be grateful and happy for ourselves of our accomplishments rather than always wishing for more. Sometimes people don't take time to celebrate what we have accomplished. We look at what we haven't done or what we where we should be or want to be rather than look at how much we've already done. And we don't take time to like really absorb it in. Um, and a lot of accomplishments, even especially for people suffering with major depression and things like that, just getting up and getting showered is very challenging for them cleaning the house, anything, pat yourself on the back. If that is something that is like hard for you, that's even if it's, you look at it as like, that should be a task. It's easy for everyone. It's not, it's not for, it's not easy for everyone. Some people need that motivation. And then not only that, write down that accomplishment and say, I, I did this today. Mm-hmm. It's hard some days. Sometimes we just don't want to get out of bed. We don't want to go outside and see the beautiful day. Like, you know, it's, and there's something with that, but to force ourselves and to accomplish, even if it's one thing a day, baby steps always work to a higher purpose. And then, but be proud of just even accomplishing the little things in life, calling a credit card company when they don't, when they, when they don't speak English or get an automated attendant, man, I'm triggered. <laughs> it's like push two and you push two. And then it's like, you're on something else. Like, Oh, I hate that. But you know, we all have our things, but yeah, here's the big question. So for all the people, a big one now, <laughs> here, here's the big question for all the people out there that think treatment and therapy is bullshit. What do you say to them? Good luck with that. No, I'm just <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'll tell you, I hear this. I hear this often, you know, from different people. And it means okay. Well, if, if if you've been to one therapist and you say you're saying that now, it means that you haven't found the right therapist. You haven't found the perfect fit. Finding the right therapist that you can relate to, that you could tell anything to, that you could tell you cut someone's head off and put it in a fridge like other that you can tell your deepest darkest wounds and not feel judged and that knows what they're doing you'll see progress within yourself and the people that say that it's crap that they haven't found that that fit that purpose or that therapist the right one they've tried it they didn't give it their all they didn't feel ready at the time they whatever because I've seen it heal so many people, um, and it's not—it's not—it's not crap. It just means that you haven't found the right fit, and you or you haven't done more work than the therapist. Some people want to come into client to therapy, and they want to like just magic wand and you do your work, but they're not willing to do the work themselves. We can give them all the tools in the world, and then they're like, "I don't want to do that," or "I didn't do it," "I didn't do it." Well, you're not going to get better if you're not going to do it and the therapist can't work harder than the client. So we say, good luck with that. Then, you know, live in your misery, but you can have a happier life and you can have a happier marriage. You can have a happier relationship with your family. You can feel more confident. You can take on challenges that you were scared to do. You can put down that drink. You can live the life you wish you were living with to help but you've got to want to do it. I like that answer. 
because yeah, I agree with that. I, I'm not a 12 step person for instance. And, but you know, I obviously encourage people to go because it has helped a lot of people give it a try, check it out. And I tell people the same thing. They're like, Oh, this meeting is ridiculous. And is that the only one you've tried? Maybe you should go look at another one and see if there's one out there that may fit for you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, it's, that's a great answer. And I like that. Um, not every clinical approach is worth is um, for everyone. And on that note, like, okay, so something I'm kind of a part of now, I'm a clinical director for this um, resort that's opening up in Belize called Jaguarundi, Jaguarundi Shores. And it's amazing. It's a, it's stuff that um, it's in Belize in paradise. And, and it's, a therapeutic resort with different programs, but for couples retreat, like that need to repair their, their relationship. I mean, in an exotic feature where they have jungle zip lining together and, and ex exotic excursions while well mixed with therapy and group therapy, individual couple therapy with licensed therapists. And they have like chemical dependency retreat, like not just for recovery, but for just a re like refresher. And, um, but it's on the northern Belize coast. You're like in paradise, meanwhile. And all the excursions are tied into therapy. So that's yeah, called Jaguarundi Shores. Like spell the word Jaguar, U-N-D-I, Shores. And you can find it on Facebook. But I'm excited to be a part of that, too, um, as well as the Moms of Clarity show. So it's like, um, and that's every Thursday and Friday, 12 to 1. Everyone has an exceptional guest with an inspirational story. You were on my show, Eric. You have a great story as well. And then I have a private practice and a counseling center too. And there are all of these things. Just bad ones. What, what city are you in? Safety Harbor, Florida. Safety Harbor? Okay. Mm -hmm. It's near Tampa, in between Tampa and Clearwater. Okay. Yeah, Safety area. I don't know Florida too well. I mean, I've been there. I've been so it's like the West Coast. So if you look, imagine the state of Florida, and there's like, uh, if you imagine like a shape of a gun or whatever, and there's that little like curve where a trigger can look at or whatever. It's on that okay. <laughs> little crev crevice or whatever. One thing I always like to do when I when I do uh, when I do meetings with people is I always like to give my guests an opportunity to say anything that you would like to say or be interested in saying that I haven't asked or related to a question. And so I wanted to give you that opportunity. If you had something that you, in particular you wanted to talk about briefly. I don't know. You asked pretty thorough questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know that we, that we've got so much more growth to do with the mental health uh, movement on uh, ending the stigma on mental health, where people can actually not feel labeled or feel ashamed to seek help because there's no shame in seeking mental health help. And um, for everyone working together, kind of like you and I are doing right now, I strongly believe that change can only come when we stand together as one and to just keep speaking out on mental health because, because so many people suffer in silence and that you're not alone. Unfortunately, so many horrible things are more common than you think and um, therapy can help. And just talking about it and knowing that, that someone can be there to listen under, with undivided attention, never tell anyone and help you get through something as simple as stubbing a toe if it bothered you to as big as trauma from childhood or anything, you know? I mean, 
to problems at work or trouble with kids or stress or anxiety or just feeling like out of sorts. It doesn't have to be a chemical medication thing to seek counseling. People go in with just everyday problems and that's, I mean, that's what counseling is. You don't have to lay on a couch. It's not like that. When people come in for the first time, I do have a couch in there, but they usually sit on it. But they're like, am I supposed to lay down or something? It's not the way you see it on the movies. <laughs> and um, it's a little more personal, like, personal like that. If you don't feel happy, there's a reason for that. And that can change. Okay. Um, I certainly believe that that everyone has a purpose in life. If you don't feel like you have a purpose, that's when you should find a counselor. And figure out what you you find a purpose that's something that makes you happy, like the activity, hobby, something that gives you a sense of purpose that you would love to do, and you feel important. You're helping others or anything. At the end of the day, change can only come. And also, I strongly learned. I say this at the end of every show: to be kind to yourself and a stranger. You never know what they're going through. Thank you for this opportunity, Eric, to be on your show. Yeah, I want to thank you for coming on. This was absolutely fantastic. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel. And I always like to throw out my email address. My email is recoveryecosystem at gmail.com. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another episode of Recovering Through Highness. Let's keep getting high. But again, drugs and alcohol are not the way that you're going to do it. And (laughs) and, uh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me.